Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. What would it like to see everyone as a friend? 12-year-old Eli D'Angelo has a genetic disorder that obliterates social inhibitions, making him an irrepressibly friendly, indiscriminately trusting, unconditionally loving toward everyone he meets. It also makes him enormously vulnerable. We're going to be talking about a book called The Boy Who Loved Too Much by Jennifer Latson. We'll be talking with Jennifer Latson. This uh, story follows Eli's coming of age while his mother, Gail, must decide whether to shield Eli entirely from the world or give him the freedom to find his own way. And uh, so we're going to be talking with uh, Jennifer Latson. We have in studio with us uh, UPR's uh, news director, uh, Carrie Bringhurst. Welcome to the program. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking with Terry Moncava, executive director of the National Williams Syndrome Association. But first, I want to spend about five minutes uh, getting to know, having you get to know, uh, Nathan. Uh, Nathan Brinkhurst, who's uh, Carrie's uh, son. Uh, Nathan has uh, Williams uh, Syndrome. And uh, so we we welcome you, Nathan. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Nathan, how old are you now? 24. You're 24. All yeah. right. Boy, it seems like you've grown up fast. I've known you for a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you, uh, w- what do you like to do? What kinds of things do you like to do? I like to do cardboard and buffalo wild wings and my face, but... Oh, okay, great. So you do yep. you, you work at Buffalo Wild Wings? Yep. What do you do down there? Do the kitchen stuff. <laughs> okay, it's great. Awesome. Great. Do you like that? Yep. Yeah, good. I bet you do a good job. Uh, yep. Also work at the Cash Employment Training Center, I yep. understand. What do you do down there? Car- cardboard and activities and stuff like that. Okay, great, yep. great. And you have uh, washed windows for the bus system. Yeah, I think right. Yeah, great. Not for a so, long time. For, not for a long time. Okay. Yeah. What uh, What about uh, you? You like to be on Facebook. Yeah. Right? right. And that's how you yeah. connect with a lot of people. Yeah. Right. You. I think you have a lot of friends on Facebook. That's right. right. Too many. Too many. Too many. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, you love music too. That's right? right. Yeah. What kinds of music? The ABBA music. The song gave me it makes me laugh. <laughs> you, you, you like ABBA? Yep. Yeah, I do too. I do yep. too. I think you also like uh, vacuum cleaners. That's right. And you, I know one one time a national company brought you a, a vacuum of your own. That's right. What what was that? What was the company? Oh, Windsor. Oh, Windsor. Oh, you yeah, you you know it, <laughs> Windsor. Yeah. yeah, I remember when they when they delivered that to you. You like yeah. uh, ceiling fans too, Nathan? Oh yes. I just ordered a. I just got a new one on eBay. Hum mom called uh, SMC, and it's like my mom was a fan in Vernal. Oh, oh, great! That's wonderful. Stencil blades look familiar to me. <laughs> and uh, soap, you collect yes. soap, yep. lots of soap. People give yep. you soap, don't they? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's and people, uh, I guess, uh, carried some prominent musical artists have interacted with Nathan. Yeah, um, Nathan was is still a big fan of Leanne Rhymes, and he's had a chance to meet with her. And also, um, I know I'd like to be able to say that I'm his favorite radio host, but mm-hmm. he likes Delilah. She does a, okay. a program, and right. he was able mm-hmm. to meet with Delilah, and he's a huge fan of Delilah. He loves Celine Dion. To love um, you more, that's... Yeah, and Enya. Um, that's right. He, and li- he also likes a, a lot of um, religious artists that... Um, <laughs> Like uh, Janice Cat Perry is also yeah. a favorite. So yeah, music is huge in his life, yeah. and it, it's it's been a, a great way for him to try and, and and to be able to make new friends and interact through his music interests. Well, that's that's great. So you got a lot of a lot of famous friends too. Yeah. 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 Good. What about your What about your family? <laughs> like, what about What about them? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, yeah. That's that that is funny, isn't it? Yeah, um, about you. Yep. Yeah. That, that's they're right. Fun. That's they're, right. They're fun. <laughs> um, so you, you have a lot of friends, uh-huh. don't you? Yep. Don't you? What, what do you like to do with your friends? I like to make them laugh because I'm pretty yeah. funny. Yeah. My friend at Buffalo Wild says, how about you so much? It's so funny. Really? Yeah. Oh, that, that is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <laughs> let's see. We need to let you go. Nathan, anything else you'd like to say? Oh. What uh, what we've talked about a lot of things you like to do, right? Yeah. And you're on on Facebook. Um, is, is there something you you'd like to do? Is there a, like a musical artist you'd like to meet that you haven't yet? I, I want to meet Celine Dion, but you want to meet Celine Dion. That'll be a little more hard, difficult, but. Uh, in fact, but, we're gonna go see her in Vegas. In like oh, that'll be fun. That'll in be fun. November. That'll be fun. Know. Well, uh, take me with you. I like Celine Dion too. So. All right, Nathan, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll let you go now. I think your dad's going to come and and uh, get you. But it's been great talking with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. 
Appreciate so I gotta that. Take me mom, dad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so that's that is uh, Nathan uh, Bringhurst, uh, 24 years old now, Carrie, and uh, and uh, great kid. I've known him for for quite a while. You have you you and Nathan have a special friendship, especially if pizza's involved. Yeah, especially if pizza's involved. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, so let me bring in uh, Jennifer Latson. Um, good to have a conversation there with uh, Nathan. Um, anything remind you of uh, your interactions with Eli? Oh gosh, so much. Yeah. I mean, just the that warm, outgoing personality and definitely a lot of the same interests. Um, ceiling fans, vacuums are huge. Um, and also just how musical his life is. He likes different performers than Nathan, but I think I just couldn't even capture in my book how often he, you know, if he's not talking, he's singing or he's always listening to music. It's just such a powerful influence in his life. Hmm. That's I, 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 Carrie. I thought that was unique to Nathan, but I guess this is kind of general William syndrome. Ceiling fans. It uh, is, and and I I think it, it's hard as a parent to to try and distinguish what is Nathanism and what is William syndrome. Right. And and you think that um, the characteristics that he has are are really his interests, but then as you gather with other parents through the William syndrome association or just others that we've met, they have the same interests, and it it's bizarre to me because um, it, it brings that whole nature-nurture thing into perspective and how much um, influence is it because of things he's been um, connected to because of experiences in his life or things that are just a natural interest. I know for him that uh, the interest in vacuum cleaners came because he has hyperacusis. A lot of um, individuals with Williams syndrome have very sensitive hearing. And so he would fear the sound of vacuum cleaners. And as a way to help him overcome that fear, when he was in preschool, um, they had the janitor would work with him, and he would get to help vacuum. And then he became obsessed with vacuums. So I've seen that in other aspects of his life, um, uh, sirens, other loud sounds. One of our friends, Chrissy, who has Williams syndrome, she's 34. She loves lightning and storms because at first those things caused her fear, but then she was able to transition from that stage of fear into kind of an obsession. And, and they almost have to be really careful that she doesn't go out into the lightning storms because she's so overcome with this desire to um, hear the sounds, the large thunder, and, and see the lightning. Hmm. Uh, Jennifer, I guess we should back up and, and define Williams syndrome. This is a genetic uh, disorder. It's uh, 20-something genes that are switched off. Right. It's 26, about 26 missing genes um, from chromosome 7, and it's, you know the same genes are missing in almost everyone with Williams syndrome. But it's such a tiny fraction of the 20,000 or so genes in human DNA that it's called a microdeletion. And, you know, compared to something like Down syndrome, which involves a couple hundred genes, um, it's very small. And what's been so interesting for geneticists is that this tiny little missing piece creates all these very kind of big symptoms and easily observable symptoms, and that something like having a warm, gregarious personality is even considered a symptom. Yeah, and that's uh, there was a scientist uh, that was giving a presentation you write about in the book um, who uh, identified the rest of us syndrome. Yes. Uh, could you explain that? Yes. So this is a, um, a developmental psychologist who works with a lot of, she specializes in Williams, um, and she was giving a presentation at one of the Williams syndrome conventions uh, to new parents whose kids had recently been diagnosed. And she was um, sort of tongue-in-cheek giving some slides about T-R-O-U-S, the rest of us syndrome. And so from the perspective of someone with Williams, there are all these crazy things about the rest of us, like, you know, we don't hug very often. We might only say I love you a few times a day rather than just constantly to everyone we see. Um, so it's really interesting to put it in that perspective because, you know, what's pathological about having a very warm and trusting personality? It's only because it's different from what the majority of us have, but it's not necessarily, you know, better or worse. So to carry the social part of it, mm -hmm. um, Williams syndrome, uh, people tend to be trusting, open, hard on their sleeve, gregarious. Yeah, and, and I remember when Nathan was younger, um, one of the things that was talked about um, 
for parents was how how and what can we do when they're younger to help them understand what is appropriate as far as um, reaching out to others. Um, Nathan is a huggy person, and um, it's taken years for us to try and help him understand that not everybody is comfortable being approached by a stranger and having a hug. And and yeah, there were, have been times in my life when I thought, wow, that's a sad scenario, you know, that we can't feel comfortable giving hugs. But also important to learn that respect of other people and their space and, and what they're comfortable doing. Um, but that kind of relates again to the safety factors of, of these individuals. And they are so trusting. And you want to try and give them opportunities to explore and to share their love, but you also have to be concerned about their well-being and their welfare, not just um, physical uh, concerns with their well-being, but emotionally, you know, they're being rejected and, and not understanding why somebody may pull away or and then and then they just continue to want it's like somebody pulls away from them and they're even more insistent that no I will give you a hug mm-hmm. so you you have to to learn how to balance that and it's oftentimes in public and I mean to be honest it hasn't always been easy for my children and other family members um to be in situations where Nathan has wanted to approach strangers all of the time and uh so you know, there's there's challenges not just for the individual with Williams syndrome, but you know, there are certain aspects that a family has to deal with and learning how to balance that. And there are times when you just want to not go anywhere and do anything because sometimes it's um, it's uncomfortable, not just for them, but but other members of the family. So you have to learn to balance that as well. Yeah. Uh, so Jennifer, that does that ring a bell with regard to e- Eli? And I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten Eli's mother's name. Gail. Yeah. Gail. Her struggle. So I started, um, I sort of insinuated myself into their lives when Eli was 12, and then the book covers the time from when he was 12 to 15. So I really kind of looked at his coming of age and that transition to adulthood, and that was exactly what Gail struggled with is how can he, how can she help teach him that not everyone is worthy of his trust and that not everyone wants to be his best friend and um, just this tornado of hugging that happens, she really worked hard to turn it off. And it was kind of a bittersweet mm. transition of, you know, he has he has kind of reined in some of those impulses, and that is a little bit sad, but it's also the thing that's going to give him his best shot at independence as he gets older. Carrie, that, that, that's a hard choice to make. It is it. a hard choice. And I, Jenny, have to admit, um, I purchased your book when it was first released, but I have not been able to bring myself to read it. Okay. <laughs> there are several reasons for that because um, I, I think I need to be in a certain place in my own mind and in my own emotional state to, to be able um, to read it because, to me, it's the story of, of Eli's mother, and, and that's going to be where I relate. And... Um, and I, I, I'm a little nervous about, I guess, maybe that awareness that will come to me. And, and um, you know, I know how she feels. I, I did read a little excerpt of when they were in the hotel room. I guess they, I, I'm trying to remember the details. They were they were staying somewhere at the hotel, and he had... We were on our way back, I think, from the Williams Syndrome camp. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. And I, I've experienced those same things, and... and like why do I want to read about somebody else experiencing that I'm I'm already doing that so but there there are also some benefits of knowing that you're not the only person out there and learning from each other and and that's the great thing about this book and also association the Williams Syndrome Association and and being able to talk with other family members who experience this but it is bittersweet to have to tell them that they can't hug or that other people don't understand that because it's it's I've also seen where it's brought so much joy and comfort to other people. And um, Nathan has developed this sense to where now he, he can kind of um, determine when somebody is open to his wanting to to express his love. And I've had several people tell me how much they appreciate it. So there is that. And I just kind of have to stand back sometimes and follow his cues. Mm-hmm. And if, if I And I can tell from other people's body language whether they're going to be um, open to this or not, so I know when to kind of pull back now. But mm-hmm. it's it's taken some time to get to that point. So Nathan, he has developed a bit of an ability then to 
Yeah, yeah. To discern who's open and who's maybe right, not. Right, yeah. right. And yeah. also teaching him, you know, why don't you ask people if, if they're comfortable? Would you like a hug? Or mm-hmm. would you like to give me a hand, you know, a handshake or um, maybe just a high five, mm-hmm. whatever. So we've tried to teach him other ways to try and approach people, but it doesn't always work. Yeah. It really doesn't. So Jennifer, you you talk about this. The thing that fascinated you, that drew you in, is the, the that uh, you know sort of the the opposite of the rest of us syndrome, which is shouldn't we all be like this? Shouldn't we all be open and gregarious and trusting? And uh, but that that would leave us all vulnerable. We learn through through our experiences to to guard ourselves, where people with Williams syndrome have trouble doing that. Right. I mean, it would work if we all did it, but <laughs> if not everyone does it then it, right, it leaves you open to um, the potential of being taken advantage of. But it is interesting what Carrie was talking about, how there's such a range of reactions to people. I think Williams is such an, it really magnifies the response of, of the rest of us and sort of what, what we're looking for, what we're comfortable with. So I think um, as a whole, American culture is pretty pro-extroversion. You know, we value outgoing people, we're comfortable hugging for the most part, and so um, that's a little different from some other cultures. Um, in the book I mentioned there was a cross-cultural study of Williams Syndrome in the U.S. and in Japan where um, extroversion is not as highly valued, and so people with Williams Syndrome were even more stigmatized in Japan, and they were seen as more offensive, mm-hmm. more intrusive, and more likely to end up in an institution Whereas then you had, um, there was a study of Williams Syndrome in Greece, which is a very kind of open, close, huggy (laughs) culture, I guess. And people didn't see the behavior of Williams Syndrome as pathological at all. It was just mostly focused on the medical symptoms. So it's really an interesting barometer for what the cultural norms are and what people value. But again, like Carrie said, I've seen some people respond to Eli with just profound appreciation and um, you know you can tell he's really made someone's day by approaching them with this genuine interest in other people and genuine love for another person that he's never met before hmm. I wonder uh, Carrie brings up a good point it would be you know it would be very cultural at least the social aspect mm-hmm. and that that's the face of it there are some medical things we'll talk about that as we go along as well but for example my interactions with Nathan have been brief mm-hmm um, but sometimes I've had to tell him, uh, hey, Nathan, I need to get back to work, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> because because that gregariousness and that friendliness is relentless. Okay, and so that, as, I, as Jennifer was talking, I thought another thing that it forces us to do, um, not only become aware of our, our um, level of acceptance of physical um, interaction, but also it forces us to be honest. And sometimes we have to be brutally honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had situations where people have said things to Nathan, um, for example, oh, let's get together and do this, or let's go out to lunch. Nathan does not forget. <laughs> and if, if, is that, isn't that true? And oh, if, absolutely. And if you make a promise to Nathan or in, even insinuate that something's going to happen, boy, you better follow through on it. And I've had to say to people um, as kindly as possible, you know, don't do that. Don't don't make promises you're not going to keep. You have to be honest. If you know he's not gonna he's gonna hold you to that, and um and so you you know it's it's something that has made me realize sometimes I say things and really don't intend to follow through, and and he's made me realize you know if I say something to somebody I need to have that integrity and follow through on it, and and it's interesting in our society how many people don't do that and mm-hmm. it's not intentional and it's not an intended flaw. Um, it's just something that I think in our culture we we say things to try to appease and without really having the intention or even having the intention and just not being able to find the time. And same with you, Tom. I've had to say, you know, Nathan, we, we need to not do this anymore and we're going to move on and I'm really busy. And, you know, you think that it would offend him, but he appreciates that honesty. Mm. Oh, good, good, yeah. And it, and it occurs to me again, shouldn't we all... Shouldn't we all be honest that way? Not tell those little white lies that are a part of our social conventions, right? Right. William syndrome, they don't pick up on on, on that. And, and Jennifer, can I ask Jennifer yeah, a question yes. about Eli? Because, again, I haven't read the book. But um, is Eli like Nathan in that if somebody does something for him, um, whether it be just a post on Facebook or especially if they give him a bar of soap, he never forgets that person. 
And right. if he meets somebody, and I know this is part of the genetic makeup, they have this ability to, um, uh, they make comparisons in their identity for Nathan. It's their smile. He often will trigger in on somebody's smile, and if he sees that person again, he will recognize them based on their smile. I, I want to just share an example of that that mm. just happened this weekend. We were out of town. We were in southern Utah. Nathan was with a set of other friends. They were at Chuckarama having lunch. He looks across the table and sees somebody and recognizes her as a Facebook friend that was from St. George that he's never met before, but because of her smile, he recognized her. And they are Facebook friends, and they met for the first time. And, you know, even just through that where they hadn't met um, directly and just through Facebook, he recognized her face from that picture. Wow. And things like that yeah. happen. It's it's amazing how often that happens. Mm-hmm. And so they have this ability to remember people and to make this connection. And, and he really doesn't forget. If somebody gives him a bar of soap, he remembers that person and which bar of soap they give him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, amazing, amazing. Um, is, I wanna... is Eli like that? Do you know? He's Jennifer? absolutely like that. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. think that's a fairly universal trait for Williams because I've read some studies that their facial recognition is, really good and and that memory just stays with them um and there were some kind of comparison studies between people with autism and people with williams um you know if you show them a video what are they looking at people with autism tend to be looking at not the faces not the people in the video but they'll be looking at a light switch or a mechanical object whereas people with williams really zone in on the faces to an unprecedented degree much more so than the rest of us and um, they just are laser-focused on people's faces and watching their faces and watching their expressions. And there is a research study being done right now at the University of Utah, which the University of Utah is one of um, the largest research centers for Williams Syndrome in the nation. And uh, Nathan was part of a, a study where that very thing was measured through, MM, through MRIs, where they would show pictures of people in different emotions, and they would measure um, whether it, it even measure the level of hormones and what type of reaction he was having to those um, facial features, whether it be smiling or sad, crying, um, discouraged. And so they are at this moment doing that type of research right here in the state of Utah. Boy, wow. in, yeah, interesting. Fascinating. Uh, Jennifer, it, it occurs to me, and Carrie mentioned this earlier in the program, this is a, an interesting test case for nature versus nurture, right? Uh, some things which I would have thought of, friendliness, gregariousness, as being more nurture, um, apparently have a, a strong genetic uh, basis. Yeah, and this has been one of the um, kind of keys for a lot of geneticists to get at that because it's so hard to trace the genetic roots of personality, um, although we do know that there are genetic components of it. Um, so this has really kind of opened the door to studying exactly which genes are involved. And there are some scientists who isolated one gene in particular of the 26 missing Williams genes that really seems to be correlated with the, um, the warm, friendly, outgoing personality. And that gene plays a role in producing the hormone oxytocin and so I'm wondering, um, Carrie, if mm-hmm. that's what they're tracking in that study. But um, yes, Dr. So Korenberg, I think you oh yeah, you referred to her. Her. yeah that's yeah, the neuroscientist she's like leading that, the the front on this kind of research. She is. Yeah, and and from what I understand in my conversations with Dr. Kornberg is they hope to see, um, again, the genetic correlations to see if if they can um, figure out how to maybe duplicate that and then um, produce that that hormone in other people with depression. And wouldn't that be wonderful? And Nathan takes very seriously the um, opportunity to be able to participate in these research mm-hmm. studies, knowing that it might be able at some point to help other people. And it, it is it is an amazing, fascinating area in neuroscience. Nathan feels like he's being helpful. He, he does. He takes it seriously. And that's he gets great. a, a check great, yeah. for $100. Yeah, well, that doesn't good. hurt either. <laughs> that, that <laughs> can buy help. another ceiling fan. Oh, and that's what's that so important about Williams Syndrome is, you know, one in 10,000 people are affected by Williams Syndrome itself, but the research into Williams Syndrome has so much, you know, wide-ranging effect on all of us and could lead to treatments for things like depression, PTSD, autism, things that aren't the same, but that they also work on that sort of social behavior aspect. Before we go to break, we'll go to break, and then when we come back, we'll have um, Terry Mokaba join us, Executive Director of the Williams Syndrome Association. Um, 
I'll, I'll direct this uh, first to you, Carrie. Uh, there, I was interested to hear some some connections between Williams syndrome and autism, some similarities. You wouldn't think that, right? Because yeah, because it's they, they manifest themselves so differently socially. Yeah, and I don't think they know for certain. I know um, this last research study that Nathan was involved in, and just a couple of weeks ago, um, there was an expert in autism that met with Nathan to try and see if there were similarities and if he he did. Um, in fact, have autism. And the initial, from what we we heard, was that he hasn't been diagnosed with autism, but I still see some autistic tendencies. Um, he does, uh, he'll, he'll rock back and forth, you know, to mm-hmm. try and kind of soothe himself. And um, But socially, I know the definition of autism when I talked to this doctor was they, they don't engage socially. So there is that difference. But um, obsessive-compulsive behaviors are very common in individuals with Williams syndrome. Um, can also maybe be characteristics of somebody with autism, but not necessarily meaning that that is an autistic um, characteristics. So they, there's this merging that happens or overlapping. And, and just like with Down syndrome, individuals with Williams syndrome may have varying um, levels of abilities or mm-hmm. disabilities um, cognitively as well as socially and a lot of physical differences. And, and you know, you mentioned that there are some physical attributes <clears throat> or concerns when um, you are diagnosed with Williams syndrome that, that we really have to follow not only as as medical industry, but also parents, things I have to follow. And, and that's, as I've attended the different conferences, um, seen a variety of, of levels of, of physical challenges maybe that are different for each individual with Williams syndrome, whether it be their spinal um, issues. Um, I know Nathan has a, a bit of a, an S curve in his spine, but I've seen some very severe spinal deformities in individuals with Williams syndrome. So that that is different. Heart conditions can vary different. Um, for each individual. Nathan's is very uh, minimal heart problems, but having a stent placed within the heart, because one of the genes they are missing is the elastin gene, and that does Mm. affect the elasticity, the ability um, for the veins and vessels to be able to to remain taut and and strong, and that can affect the heart. They also have extremely soft skin. Ah, okay. Which which can be be nice, I oh, guess, it is as nice. a mother, right? But they yeah. age yeah. they age rapidly right. because of that. They're okay. not they're missing that elastin gene. And curly hair is also an attribute okay. um, of yeah. somebody with Williams syndrome yeah. more, more often than not. Uh, Jennifer, I wonder what uh, before we go to break in anything you'd like to say on this. Some inter- some surprising, uh, or at least surprising to me, interconnections between Williams syndrome, autism, perhaps Down syndrome. Yeah, I think the um, you know I've. I sometimes simplify and say Williams syndrome is referred to as the opposite of autism, which is true, as Carrie said, socially. But then there are so many overlaps, as she also mentioned, um, and a lot of the behaviors, apart from the social engagement, are similar. And uh, one thing that a psychologist pointed out is really um, people with Williams and people with autism have a similar problem in connecting with other people, like they're not making these sort of deep interpersonal connections because they're not always able to read these social cues like we talked about. If you say, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get coffee next week, they don't take that as a brush off. They take that as a promise. And that's something that people with autism struggle with, too, is just those really subtle social cues that I think are more sophisticated than we realize. Um, And so they do end up having trouble making real strong friendships because they're at least in Williams, they're sort of giving too much and too affectionate in a way that can be off-putting to people. Let's uh, take a break. We're talking about Williams Syndrome in the program today. We're talking with uh, Jennifer Latson, author of The Boy Who Loved Too Much. We're talking with Carrie Bringhurst, uh, UPR News Director. And we talked earlier in the program with uh, Nathan, her son, who has Williams Syndrome. And uh, after the break, we'll be uh, uh, adding to the conversation Terry Mokaba, Executive Director of the Williams Syndrome Association. We hope to hear from you as well. If you have a question or comment, to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about Williams Syndrome on the program today. What would it be like to see everyone as a friend? 
Twelve-year-old Eli D'Angelo has a genetic disorder that obliterates social inhibitions, making him irrepressibly friendly, indiscriminately trusting, unconditionally loving toward everyone he meets. It also makes him enormously vulnerable. And we've been talking with uh, Jennifer Latson, author of The Boy Who Loved Too Much. Also in studio is UPR News Director Carrie Bringhurst. And we now, uh, and early in the program, we talked with uh, Carrie's son, Nathan, who has uh, Williams Syndrome. And uh, now we bring on uh, Terry Moncava, Executive Director of the Williams Syndrome Association. Uh, Terry, welcome to the program. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? It's uh, Moncava. Thank it's you so much for having Moncava. me. Moncava, thanks, thanks for being with us. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you what the prevalence of Williams Syndrome. What, uh, how many people are there uh, out there how, uh, per population? How prevalent is it? The, the, uh, the prevalence of Williams Syndrome is 1 in 10,000. So there are probably between 25 and 30,000 individuals with Williams Syndrome in the United States. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about the Williams Syndrome Association. The Williams Syndrome Association was formed in 1983 by literally a handful of parents of kids with Williams Syndrome. And for the last almost 35 years now, we have been working to provide support and resources and education to both families and the professionals who are working with uh, individuals with Williams Syndrome. Is there research going on? Lots of research. The Williams Syndrome Association itself does not do research, although we do support research for many teams, um, research teams throughout the country. I want to turn uh, back to Jennifer Latson. We'll uh, involve her in the conversation here, but People with Williams Syndrome, because of this uh, gregariousness, this trusting uh, nature, uh, I could imagine you write about this in the book as well, uh, could be more vulnerable to bullying, to abuse. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's um, it's hard to, to instill the idea that some people might wish them harm or might not be worthy of trust, and so that's definitely something that Gil struggled with. I mean, Eli would approach everyone with open arms and Eventually, you know, if you were mean enough to him, he he would not be <laughs> seeking you out anymore. But it was really something where he gave you the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. Uh, Carrie, you were nodding your head here. I guess Nathan's had some of these experiences. Yeah, and well, I you know, sometimes I'm the one that's had to be mean, or I've had to have the other person be mean. I had a situation where someone was really not comfortable with Nathan, um, and and it was you know he he. And I know this happens, and Terry, you can maybe share experiences of this too. But there was a point in Nathan's life where he would just um, bolt. He would leave the house. I wouldn't know where he was. And oftentimes he would be at this neighbor's home. And this neighbor was busy. Uh, she was a single mother. She had a lot going on in her life. And 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 she did the right thing in approaching me and saying, you know, there. she didn't want to be rude to Nathan. She didn't want to hurt his feelings. And she didn't know how to approach it. And she did the right thing in coming to me and saying, what can I do? How can I help resolve this problem? Because even our efforts in saying, you know, Nathan, you need to check with us. We can call her and see if it's a good time. Still, it just he wouldn't couldn't comprehend. Like Jennifer was saying, they don't have they don't understand those social cues. And I finally had to say to this neighbor, "You are going to have to be mean." Oh, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to. And I I tried to explain to her that that would be the the best thing she could do with Nathan is, is flat out saying, "Nathan, this is not a good time." And um, it, it is hard. That was a really hard conversation for all of us to have. And uh, we were worried about how Nathan would react. And I think this was my first lesson in realizing that Nathan actually appreciated the honesty. And when she said, no, it wasn't a good time, he seemed to handle it very well. I explained to him, and there wasn't a problem after that. And they became the best of friends, mm-hmm. he and this neighbor, um, because there was this this respect that Nathan was able to break through. And she actually did him a favor, I think. Um, sometimes we don't give our, our children credit and in giving them the opportunity to show us what they are capable of doing. Hmm. I, want to, I want to talk about expectations. Yes, go ahead. That's so true. I'm sorry. Um, I, I see it so often, not just with my son, but with with others that, you know, they're perfectly willing <clears throat> to learn a lesson. You know, he, Benjamin, always wanted to, um, you know, to ask the prettiest girls to the school dances, for instance. But he always intuitively gave them a way out. He would call them, but he would always say to them, I know you're probably busy because somebody's already asked you, but would you go to the dance with me? 
So you always gave them that ability to say, whether it was true or not, oh, darn, Ben, you're right. I just got asked yesterday. I'm sorry. I can't go with you. So, or, Terry, you know, Terry, was that and, something you taught him? Because I don't see that happening naturally in Nathan. That makes me think well, that that was a skill no, yeah, that you... For Ben, no, we didn't teach him. Hmm. <laughs> it, it's hmm. always been the way he was. But I, I think the whole piece about the vulnerability, it's such a double-edged sword. You know, on the other on the other hand, I've had, you know, situations with Ben where he was, the person that was be, that was bullying him was not, um, you know, a, a schoolmate, but a service provider. And he, you know, doesn't want to speak ill of anyone. And so he wouldn't tell me. And it wasn't, you know, until finally he said to me one day after, you know, months of being verbally abused by someone who I trusted and who I thought loved Benjamin, you know, Mom, sometimes people are going to get the wrong idea of Jane if she keeps yelling me at me all the time. They won't know that sometimes she can be nice. Hmm. Yeah, and interesting. It's like, interesting. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, that was my first inkling that <laughs> she had been, you know, verbally abusing him. And so then I, I started asking around and found out that others had noticed that, you know, she was really quite short with him and, and not good to him in public. But, you know, they assumed that this was, you know, some sort of tough love strategy and didn't tell me. Hmm. And the hmm. same the same with, you know, teachers that he doesn't like. If he if he's, has a class, you know, that he particularly doesn't like, he'll say to me, if I'll say, how's, how's you know, such and such a class going, he'll say, well, Mrs. Jones tries really hard, Mom. <laughs> and and that's, my, that's my only indication that, this is not a good match. <laughs> Interesting. It gives her the benefit um, of the doubt, at least verbally. Yeah, yeah he never yeah. wants to say, you know, <laughs> just just last week we had an issue with the staff at his home. And, you know, again, we're asking him, uh, you know, how's everything going? And he said his first lead-in was, well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Mm. You oh. know, and then he finally told us that one of the staff members was leaving him alone, you know, quite often, and it made him nervous. Mm. Like, Oh my goodness! This should not be happening. And well, I, you know, so that that vulnerability um, is is so important for us all to be aware of and to do to teach the, the these guys, you know, strategies for how to overcome these things and and how to talk that it's okay to to bring up, you know, issues. Um, they they just don't want to see the bad in anyone. They they're always, uh, for the most part looking on the bright side. And Terry, um, I, I think, you know, in Ben's case, and I, I'm hoping in most people's case, uh, I know you're a wonderful advocate for Ben, but not, not every child with Williams syndrome has that, Tom. They don't have, you know, not all parents have that skill, and I think when you come into this, you definitely don't realize how much you're going to be dependent on uh, service providers, like Terry was mentioning um, the school system, the, the educators, and, and how you really have to almost be on top of that at all times throughout their lives. I mean, Ben is, is no longer living at home full-time, but Terry has to be involved with the providers and those at the home that are, are um, there to help make sure he's safe and, and has his needs met. And and that's, that's a whole different relationship that um, a lot of parents don't have to deal with, and, and those of us with children who have these special needs, whether it's Williams Syndrome or another uh, situation, really um, rely on, like the Williams Syndrome Association, to provide us as parents and also professionals working with our children some guides, some tools, some help, supports. Right. Let me talk a little bit, uh, go around the table, and we'll take another break. Um, I'm, I'm reading uh, a blog of the Williams Syndrome Association uh, website which is williams-syndrome.org. Uh, it's called Unwavering Expectations. And a couple of parents, Lisa and Ned Portune, um, they talk about how they, they relentlessly had to work with people to keep expectations high, including with their daughter. Um, so I, I wonder, first of all, with uh, Jennifer Latson, what, how has Gail done this? I imagine that, you, know, you want to be protective. You also want to have uh, Eli reach his full potential. Uh, how has... How has Gail worked to uh, to try to keep those expectations up 
getting that getting Eli to his top I, potential. Yeah, I think that has been one of the hardest balances she's had to strike is wanting to make his life as easy as possible and not ever see him struggle, but also kind of give him the chance to fail sometimes or try things that are hard or uncomfortable because that's just part of life and growing up. And she has <laughs> she has not wanted to do that. And as Eli's gotten older, she sort of forced herself, okay, you know, I'm going to maybe let him be in a situation where he could be, you know, someone could be mean to him, like Carrie was saying, like, that's a way to learn. And so even though she wants to protect him at every turn, she's had to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to be lurking over him when he's, like, he started to go to school dances, and it's her instinct to just go be by his side at all times and make sure no one's mean to him. But, you know, if they're mean to him, that might be a way to learn and grow, too, and that is just part of life. Let me turn next to Carrie on this. What uh, with, I'm sure you want Nathan to reach his top potential. Yeah, and and like Terry was saying, sometimes it's the service providers that can can be the obstacle in your efforts to try and help them have experiences. Um, for example, Nathan went out and really got this job at Buffalo Wild Wings on his own, mm-hmm. but because it didn't fit within the parameters of the program that he was attending, and they hadn't. Um, Nathan hadn't, and we hadn't gone through the proper procedures um, that they were used to in setting up this job. They were very resistant to that and very discouraging. And it literally took us a couple of years to get to the point where um, we, and we had to meet with the state and convince them that this was a good thing for Nathan and this was a good thing for the company he was working for. And sometimes those can be the bigger obstacles that I did not expect. And I I didn't really think we would have to be... Um, uh, advocates in that way where the services that um, he was getting would actually sometimes be uh, a, a, a difficult situation to maneuver through. But um, you do have to, and I, you know, they have to have an opportunity to, to prove what they can do. And, and I think sometimes um, we don't expect enough from them. And and really see what, what they are capable of doing. Um, Nathan has never been good at riding a bike, will never be able to drive a vehicle, but boy, he gets on our lawnmower, our riding lawnmower, and he's a whiz. <laughs> and it, I was a little apprehensive about having him be on a motorized vehicle, and he loves it, and it gives him a sense of freedom. And and so, you know, it, sometimes we're the ones that are holding them back. Yeah. I was interested, uh, Terry, to, to read this on the on the uh, the website uh, here with the, with the portunes and it seems like um it's paid dividends for them uh, their daughter Erin is uh, going to college for example yes i mean it's a a wonderful program that that Erin is in and you know so many more individuals are in programs now you know t- 10 or 15 years ago there were maybe you know 20 programs across the country and now there are more than 250 <clears throat> programs of all different types for for individuals with cognitive challenges or developmental challenges. And so the opportunities are out there. Um, but finding the right one, and, you know, Ned describes the whole process that they went through, you know, throughout Erin's high school a career to try to help her become a decision maker, as we all do, you know, as parents, it's so natural for all of us to be enablers. We just, we want to help our kids. It automatically do what's best and, and do more and more. And in many ways, it's the biggest disservice we can do for them because what happens is suddenly, you know, I'm in Massachusetts and my son is calling me up and saying, Mom, is it okay if I buy an extra Coke today? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> Ben, you're 30 years old. You can make your own decision now. Hmm. And he knows that and he's capable of making decisions. But his first thought is to ask someone else and to get that reinforcement that, that it's okay. And certainly, you know, that's not true of, of, of every child, but, it's, but I noticed that at, at the Berkshire Hills Music Academy where, where Ben goes to school, um, you know, almost all of us, when our children arrive, are, um, are enablers. And so the, the, the school begins to, to help all of the kids in the decision process and in the, you know, um, acquiring the skills of daily living that they need, doing the laundry and going to the bank and all of those budgeting, you know, things and that are so difficult for our kids and they, 
they learn it, and then it's, this is college, so they don't go home for two or three days. They go home for a couple weeks, and during that couple weeks, the parents all of a sudden are doing the cooking and doing the laundry and, you know, handing the money when they need it, and all of those skills get unlearned very quickly. Hmm. And so it's really, um, as Carrie said, you know, this is a, a lifelong process, and it's not just the individuals that have to learn. It's all of us as parents have, have so much have so much to learn. We have to be, our kids are so easily set up for failure. And not knowingly, you know, folks just don't realize the, the, um, the sort of different combination of challenges and gifts that individuals with Williams syndrome have. And if you don't know what the challenges are, because they have a wonderful verbal ability and are so agreeable that, you know, you ask them to do something, they'll say, sure. And, you know, it's quite possible that they don't know how to do that something or they didn't understand the directions, you know, and if given another way, they could do that skill. Um, But they don't let you know that they don't understand. They just agree to it. And so, you know, oftentimes in a job setting, um, you know, individuals get set up for failure, you know, quite unknowingly when there is definitely things that they could be doing very successfully in so many job settings if just given the chance. And that's why it's associations like ours, one of the main things that we are constantly trying to do is educate the educators, educate the employers, and educate the parents on, you know, how to understand what it is that your children want, how to set, how to help them set their vision, and how to help you set a realistic vision, and then go out into the community and make that happen. Because for our kids, it just doesn't happen naturally. So it is just, it's, it's hard. I mean, we have to be on point all the time, and none of us can be. Um, so it's, uh, um, like I said, it's, it's a lifelong journey of a different kind, for sure. We uh, will uh, not take a break. We'll just have, in fact, about five minutes left in the program. I want to get this question. This has come in from Joanne, uh, who emailed us. She said, originally we were told that Williams Syndrome individuals would experience rapid aging. Is there any new information about the aging process? And Joanne goes on to say, Stacy has had gray hair since her late 20s. Also, could you address the tendency of intestinal ruptures or similar issues? Just a note, I wish everyone could have the opportunity of experiencing the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness as our daughter has given us. So thanks for that, uh, Joanne. Uh, I'm not sure who wants to take this. The First of all, on the aging process. Any new information on aging process? Uh, I think that, that, that I can um, perhaps give a little bit of, of um, light. I think we're just, we're just learning about the uh, life expectancies and those sorts of things as more and more individuals with Williams Syndrome age. But um, the scientific community has told me that they believe that the early effects of, agency, of aging due to the elastin deficiency will probably um, lead to a life expectancy that might be in the, in the neighborhood of 10 years less than those are the general public, but of course that can be changed, um, impacted by the medical problems that so many of our of our individuals have. I mean, early graying of hair and that sort of thing is very typical of Williams. You see uh, a fair amount of individuals in their 20s with gray hair. Of course, there are individuals in their 20s in the general population who have gray hair as well. But there there are some early aging effects um, due to the elastin deletion and. You know, we also had, you know, the oldest individual with Williams that we know uh, passed on just a couple years ago, and she was 82, so certainly lived a, a very a very rich life. Um, and then as far as the gastrointestinal issues, um, we are just learning how widespread they tend to be. Uh, my son Ben's colon ruptured last year, and, he, you know, he at age 29, so that is that is so unusual in, in the general public, but not, not so unusual at all within the Williams Syndrome population. There are many kids who have lifelong uh, gastrointestinal problems, and we are trying now to you know, work with the experts to get to the, more of the roots of, the, of those problems and hopefully be able to, um, to provide families with ways that they can 
you know, sort of see these problems coming. And we, we never knew that Ben had diverticulitis, uh, didn't know he had any issues at all. And then all of a sudden, you know, he lost 18 inches of his colon one night. Mm. So you just, you just don't know. Yeah, you, you never know. We just have about three minutes left, maybe about a minute each for final words, starting with uh, Jennifer Latson. What's, what's your takeaway? Um, well, I kind of wanted to come back to what uh, Carrie had mentioned earlier, just about the richness of the interactions that people with Williams can have, and just the fact that um, there's some lessons that they are born learning that the rest of us do have to learn, like the golden rule and kind of treating everyone with respect and kindness. Um, and I did want to mention there was this 2010 study that found people with Williams syndrome didn't show any signs of implicit racial bias, which was something very unique to Williams because everyone else over the age of three demonstrates an implicit bias towards people who look different. Um, so that's something that Williams just um, kind of brings naturally is this sense that everyone has the same value and everyone should be treated kindly. And just a minute to Terry, uh, and then we'll go to Carrie for the final word. Uh, Terry, what would you say the takeaway? The world needs to know more about our individuals uh, with Williams Syndrome. They have extraordinary gifts. They have unique challenges, and they have so much that they give to the folks that they know and that they can give to the community at large. And so I am you know, so grateful to programs like this one and to Jennifer's book and the uh, attention that it's bringing to Williams Syndrome because, like I said, I mean, there needs to be more research to help our kids to overcome the challenges so that more people can appreciate the gifts because they are unique and wonderful individuals. We'll give Carrie the last word. And I, I would just, um, I would say for me the greatest... It's like we need to uh, fade up uh, Carrie's mic. There we go. I, I would say the, the greatest uh, aspect of, of Nathan's Williams Syndrome for me personally has um, been the realization of how generous and kind people really are and how um, there are the majority of people out there who are willing to reach out and who are accepting and loving. And not only does Nathan benefit from this, but I personally have benefited from those relationships and seeing that interaction. And it it um, gives me hope in humankind and in the world. And um, what could be greater than that? Uh, very well said. Uh, we uh, will point you to the Williams Syndrome Association, which is williams-syndrome.org. And we uh, have been talking with Jennifer Latson, who is author of The Boy Who Loved Too Much. Jennifer, thank you so much. And we've been talking with uh, Terry Monkeba, who is Executive Director of the Williams Syndrome Association. Thank you to you. And uh, thanks to Carrie. And thank you to you, Tom, and Terry and, and Jennifer. It's been a pleasure. And our thanks to Nathan, who uh, joined us on the program as well. Our thanks uh, for listening. Tomorrow we're going to talk about drug court. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today.